Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we come before you today. We're gathered under your banner. We believe in you, but our hearts are hungry for you, and we need to hear from you, God. And I pray that you would speak, that your spirit would be here, and your spirit would speak to our hearts the things that we need, whether it's challenge or encouragement, but that we would just hear your words. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the craziest thing that you did as a child? How many of you would consider yourselves daredevil children? Anyone? Just not that many? I called my parents and I asked them to come up with a list of three of the craziest things they can remember me doing. And it was funny. Um, They said that as a child, I was absolutely fearless. And maybe I should have been a little bit more fearless and it would have been a little bit smarter, but I was a fearless child. For example... At the Southeastern California Conference, there is a staircase with with two staircases, but from the the top of the second staircase, you can actually see the bottom. And one time my parents or somebody was there for some kind of Pathfinder meeting, and my friends and I were bored. So we decided that we would play this game to see who could jump off the highest level of stairs. I was the smallest one, probably about eight years old, And I had something to prove. And so people were going higher and higher and higher and higher. And what did I do? But I climbed to the top of the second staircase. I went all the way back and I ran and I took a flying leap off that second staircase. Unfortunately, you have to jump further out and I landed on the bottom step, (laughs) sprained both my ankles, but it was a really good experience. My parents remember that. Another time, I was learning to ski, maybe around the same age, and my dad and I got in this huge argument about wearing a jacket because it was warm and I didn't want to wear my jacket, but he forced me to go up and I squeezed myself in between a couple people. I had two of my friends and my youth pastor there. We had four and we were only supposed to have three, but I was pretty sure I was going to be okay. We get about 35, 40 feet in the air. People look really small. When all of a sudden the girl next to me bumps me, And I wasn't sitting next to a rail, so I fell off. (laughs) And I remember falling, my skis, and I remember wondering, like, am I going to break my legs? I don't know what's going to happen. When my youth pastor reaches down, and he grabs the hood of my jacket that I didn't want to wear, and my parents remember looking from the ski lodge, watching me swinging, (laughs) swinging from his arm, and then he pulled me right back onto the ski lift. After that, they, they looked again and they saw me alone, eight or nine years old, going down a black diamond ski run by myself because I was that kind of kid. I was also the kind of kid that touched things to see if they were hot and was always experimenting, wanted to see how high, how low, how fast, how crazy could we be, how much fun could we have. That is the kind of kid that I was. But I say was because if you know me now, I am hyper-cautious. If you are a teen and you've ridden in my car, you know that the seatbelts don't come off until the handbrake is pulled and the engine has been killed. I carry around hand sanitizer because I don't know what kind of germs you guys have. I went from this crazy, fun kid to this cautious, careful person. And sometimes people say, well, it's wiser to be that way. And yet, I think all of us, as we look back on the crazy things that that we did when we were younger, There's a part of it that we miss, right? There's a part of the fearlessness, of the risk-taking, of the wanting to know, of being unafraid, not completely thinking of the consequences that we miss a little bit. We get older, and many of you older than me, and we say, well, it's just wiser to be this way. 
You have to use your mind. You have to be logical. You have to think about the risks. You can't just afford, you can't just afford to take risks. But I want to suggest to you this morning that while that is very true, and that while learning wisdom and learning caution is an important thing, there are still places in our lives where God says, take a risk. Where God says, do something that doesn't make sense. Do something that could be dangerous. Do something that could be scary. Do something that could get your heart rate up. And I want to suggest to you this morning that our willingness to say yes when God invites us into those risky areas, to say yes when God invites us to be uncomfortable, our decision, our yes or our no, is where our life hangs. And not our death or life, not our actual literal living or dying, but whether or not we are actually able to fulfill the purpose that he has given us whether our lives here on earth will count, whether we will be able to look back in our lives and say, wow, God, I cannot believe everything that you have done in my life. You are amazing. I'm living miracles every day because I'm risking for you. Or if we sit on the couch a little bit older, looking back, wondering, God, wasn't there supposed to be more than this? Wasn't it supposed to be more? In my heart, I know I was made for more than this. So why is this all that there is? That the choice to take a risk to say yes when God invites is the decision to live the life that God has called us to. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23, where we can see people, one who took a risk and many who did not. Matthew 14, chapters, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23, and it's also on the screen. And it reads, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. So immediately after this, what is this, this? The this that just happened is Jesus just fed 5,000 people with a very small amount of food. So he did something that God says, I want you to experience that. I want you to know what it's like to do something through my power that you could never do on your own. To look into your life and marvel and be like, wow, God, this has to be you because I do not have that. Jesus just did something amazing. And so he says, it's time for me to be alone. I need to be refilled. I need to be with God. So he sends his disciples into a boat and tells them to cross to the other side of the lake. Please notice, Jesus sends his disciples into the boat and tells them to cross to the other side of the lake. Verse 24, meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. So there's a bunch of fishermen who are afraid of a storm, so we know this storm must have been really real. They're in the midst of the storm, they're tired, they're fighting, they don't know what to do. And maybe you came here today feeling that way. God, I am in the midst of a storm. And I am tired and I'm fighting. I don't know how much longer I can do this. I don't know if I can stay afloat. I feel like I'm going to go down. I'm afraid. And what's even more crazy, who sent them here? Who put them in the boat and told them to go to the other side of the lake? Jesus did. Many times in our lives we think, if I follow God, if I do everything that he tells me to do, if I obey, then things are gonna turn out okay. But see, the disciples and we had to learn that obedience is not a guarantee of being spared adversity. 
That just because we obey does not mean that everything is gonna be beautiful and wonderful and perfect all the time. And sometimes as Christians, we hear just obey God and things are gonna be okay. And then storms hit our lives. And we look at God and we think, what are you doing? You said to do this and look where I ended up. But if you're in a place where you took a risk on God and you're wondering, God, why is this storm going on? Please know that God says, even when I send you, there will still be storms. Sometimes I will send you into a storm. Just because you're in a storm does not mean that you're not in my will. That obedience doesn't always mean being spared adversity, but they are in this storm for a reason. And the reason is that about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. From where he is, Jesus can see this boat where he sent his disciples. And I find it interesting he waited till three o'clock. The NKJV says that they waited, he waited till the fourth watch of the night, which means that he didn't come from nine to 12. He didn't come from 12 to two. He didn't come any time before three o'clock. He came somewhere in the midst of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. after they are exhausted, after they have been struggling. And Jesus says, I'm coming. So sometimes when we are in the midst of our storms and we're asking God to rescue us, understand that he doesn't always come in the beginning but he is on his way. He is not gonna let us drown. He's not gonna let us sink. He is on his way. And the book of Mark says, as, it ta- as he talks about this story, that Jesus came toward them walking on the water, intending to pass them. And when I read that, I thought to myself, what, he's just gonna walk by them while they're in this storm, floundering, tired, freaking out, and he's just gonna pass them by? But in scripture, when it says that God intends to pass us by, it doesn't mean pass us by and say hello. It means pass us by like when God tucked tucked Moses behind the rock and said, I'm gonna send my glory to pass by you. I'm about to have an encounter with you. Jesus came walking because he wanted to encounter them in the midst of the storm. And that's the truth sometimes that the storms that are in our lives, the reason sometimes why he allows them is because he has an intention to encounter us. God is saying, I need you to know me. These disciples had just seen him feed 5,000 people, but God says, I need you to know me, not just to learn about me, not just to hear about me, but I want to encounter you. I wanna encounter you in your life. I want you to experience me and know me in this way. And if you will wait out the storm, if you will keep being faithful, if you will wait for me, you will encounter me. I'm on my way. I'm coming. I'm not gonna leave you behind. So three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. They didn't recognize him. Jews historically are afraid of water. They believe that in the water and in the sea, it's a a domain of, of, of evil, That's why in Revelation, when it talks about the sea and the sea giving up its dead, it talks about people who are afraid of the water. So they thought there was some kind of evil spirit walking toward them. And we ask ourselves, how could you not know that's Jesus? Weren't you just with him? But I think that Matthew wants us to know that it takes eyes of faith to know where Jesus is in the midst of a storm. That when a storm is going on, Jesus is always there. But it actually takes eyes of faith to see where he is. So they're terrified, they think it's a ghost, but Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. 
I don't know if the disciples took courage at that. I'm not, I'm not really sure if they took courage at that. And the reason why I think that is because you and I don't always take courage at the fact that we know that God is there. In the midst of our circumstances, people tell us, don't worry, God is with you. He will never leave you alone. And we think to ourselves, okay, what's that going to do? And I imagine that though the disciples see him walking on the water and he says, don't be afraid, it's me. Maybe they thought to themselves a similar thing that you and I think. Okay, so you're there. What does that mean? And I think the reason why they didn't understand that they shouldn't be afraid is because they didn't really know who Jesus was. Have you ever misunderstood the identity of someone before? When I first came to San Diego, right after I graduated from high school, I was a literature evangelist. And I came completely by myself. I didn't bring any friends with me. And so I was meeting a lot of new people that were going to be in our group. And one day, this new group from Riverside Community College came, and they were going to join our group. We were all going to live together in different places for 10 weeks. And they assigned me somebody in my van um, to come and to kind of follow people around and learn how to do the work of literature evangelism. And I remember I saw this nerdy guy. He had high pants, and he had nerdy-looking glasses, and he was really nervous at the end of the day because after you've been rejected for about 98% of your questions, you get pretty nervous when you realize you're going to be doing that the next day. And this guy sits down next to me in the van, and I go, hey, what's your name? I'm trying to make him feel better. And he turns to me, he says, um, my name is Wally. And I'm like, oh, like the movie? And so I was like, let me encourage this guy. Let me try to make him feel better. But I was really glad that I was nice to him because that evening this guy walked in and he was wearing a white t-shirt. He had big muscles and he didn't have glasses. And I poked one of this, this other friend that I just met. I was like, who's that? And they're like, oh, that's Wally. I'm like, that's Wally? Good thing I was nice to him. I remember thinking, I didn't even know that's who he was. I didn't know I was to react to him in this way. When we don't really know someone, we don't really know who they are, we don't really know how to properly react to their presence. And when it comes to the disciples seeing Jesus, they don't know who he is. They don't know he's the son of God. They don't know that he could calm their storm, that he's walking on top of their storm. So when God tells us, don't be afraid because I'm here, and we don't respond, it might be because we don't really know him. How can we be comforted by a God we don't really believe can save us? How can we be comforted by a savior we don't know? And this is the reason why Jesus sends them into the storm and comes to meet them at 3 a.m. It's because he says, you've heard about me. You've seen stuff that I can do. But from now on, I want you to know that I am your savior. And if you find yourself as I do right now in the midst of a storm, God is saying, you are here because I want you to encounter me. Maybe it wasn't my plan for you to be in this storm. Maybe your choices or the choices of someone else put you there, but my intention for you is to encounter you, to encounter you in a powerful way such that you know me in a way you never knew me before. That is why they're in the midst of the storm. So Jesus says, take courage, I am here. Probably thinking to himself, after this is done, you will know what it means from now on to take courage because I am here. And then Peter calls to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. I always ask myself why he would ask this. I mean, of all things, why would he say, Jesus, me too? 
And most of the time when people talk about it, they portray Peter as being really impulsive, talking without thinking, which is true. He cuts off people's ears. He makes really weird suggestions to Jesus during the transfiguration. We know that Peter is not the greatest thinker before talker. And yet at this moment, I actually think that he is thinking before he talks. Because if you notice, he doesn't impulsively jump out of the boat like we know he would probably do, hoping that the water would hold him. He also doesn't say, Jesus, I'm coming, I'm coming. Peter asks for permission. He says, Lord, tell me to come to you walking on the water. He doesn't just do it. He recognizes that Jesus is the Lord of the water. And he says, give me permission, not just to walk in the water, but to walk toward you. Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, help me to know you better. God, help me to know you in the depths of my heart. Have you ever sang that song, Oceans? Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. That's Peter's question. He says, Jesus, call me to come to you. I want to know you. Have you ever said that to God? I think we all have. But I don't think we all count the cost or recognize what it means when we say, God, I want to know you. It's a very scary thing to do. You see, what Jesus says next, he says, yes, come. And that in itself is an invitation. And now Peter has to make a decision. When we say, God, I want to know you, God will always say to us, yes, come. Come and know me. But this is what he's inviting us into. He's inviting us into the water, which means he's inviting us into the storm, which means, that, which means that we don't have any guarantees that everything is gonna be comfortable. If you notice, Peter doesn't ask for guarantees. He doesn't say, um, Jesus, before I come out, can you promise me that I won't get too cold or be uncomfortable and I won't sink? He doesn't ask Jesus for any, any guarantees, but we do, don't we? We say, God, I will obey you as long as you make sure everything turns out well. I will obey you as long as I know where this is gonna take me. But you see, when, when God calls, he doesn't make any of those promises. He just says, yes, come. And we have to make the decision, will we get out of the boat? And each of us has our boats. The boat represents the life that we're comfortable with, the life that we feel good in, the life that is safe, the life that is easy to control, the life where we know everything that's gonna happen and we try to mitigate any problems that could come our way. That is the boat. And God is saying, Peter, get out of the boat if you wanna come to me. We all have a boat. We all have a place that we kind of hold back from God because we're afraid. In fact, fear will tell us what our boat is. When we ask ourselves, what would I be afraid to leave behind? What is it that I don't feel comfortable letting go of for God? That will always point us to what our boat is. And for some of us, our boat might be something as basic as something in American culture we value a lot. One of our highest values in American culture, we tell ourselves we deserve it, we tell our friends they deserve it, something we highly value. And I think it can be encapsulated in this image. In the image of comfort, the lazy boy recliner. This is what we strive after in our lives. We really just wanna be comfortable. We wanna be safe. We don't wanna be challenged too much. We just wanna sit back in our lazy boy recliners with our remote control and feel safe. 
If you notice, the slogan for Lazy Boy is live life comfortably. And there's a reason why they are the number one best-selling recliner company in the U.S. is because that is our desire. We don't really want to be uncomfortable. We just want to live life comfortably. There's a reason why it's called a lazy boy instead of a risky boy or a worker boy. It's because really in our hearts, we kind of just want to be comfortable. And what God is saying is, if you want to get out of the boat, you want to say yes to me, you want to follow me with everything that you have, this is what you might have to sacrifice. In fact, there are for sure seasons in your lives where you're going to have to get out of the lazy boy, going to have to get out of the lazy boat, and you're going to have to be uncomfortable. Because committing to growing in God is committing to experiencing fear. There is no growth without fear. And if we spend our entire lives trying to be comfortable, shielding ourselves from fear, shielding ourselves from the possibility of failure, we will never grow. You see, many times we say, say yes to God, go after God, but we don't always talk about the reality of it. We don't talk about the fact that storms come and out in the middle of the water, we might regret that we follow Jesus, that it might be difficult, it might be cold, that there are times where we don't know how we're gonna make it. We have to be real about the cost of following God. This is no longer our goal and our vision. It's not just to get a bunch of money, retire comfortably, live in the safest community, and sit in my lazy boy recliner. That cannot be our greatest vision. Our greatest vision has to be, you know what, Jesus? I will follow you. Why? Why does Peter get out of the boat? Because that's where Jesus is. Jesus is not in the boat. Jesus is in the water. Jesus is in the middle of the storm. And there are times where God says to you, to me, step out, try something different, reach out to this person, lead this ministry, host a small group, forgive somebody, go and reconcile with somebody. God says, love my people. And we say, you know what, God? That's a little uncomfortable. I don't really want to be uncomfortable. I don't really want to give up the things that I think are good for me. I really just kind of want to stay to myself. But you see, Peter, Peter doesn't decide that. Peter goes over the side of the boat and he begins walking on water toward Jesus. We know this story. We know that Peter's gonna experience some setbacks. But sometimes we don't think about the fact that since Peter's the only one who got out of the boat, he's the only one who experienced what it's like to walk on water. He's the only one who gets to experience doing something that he could never, ever, ever do on his own. You see, one walked on the water and 11 stayed in the boat. And many times we stay in the boat because we're afraid to fail, especially fail in front of people. That is one of our biggest fears. God says more than anything else in the Bible, fear not, because he knows that 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 is the thing that's gonna keep us most from following him. And yet Peter throws aside that fear. I imagine he was still afraid, even though he was walking on the water. He fixes his eyes on Jesus and he begins to walk. And I know what that feels like because a couple months ago, I did not walk on water, but I did walk on this skywalk at Jump Around. Um, It was two months ago, I think, and the youth wanted to go to Jump Around for an event. And at this place, they have a skywalk about 35 feet off the ground. And I am terrified of heights. That's why I'm so short. I can't take it anymore. I don't like ladders. I don't like step stools. I can't do heights. But somebody convinced me to go up on this skywalk. And knowing better, I still did it. So I get to the top. And I knew when I got to the top of the ladder that I was not going to be okay. Okay. 
because there are probably 12 to 15 little obstacles you have to do involving jumping over great chasms, standing on wiggly blue things, walking on, wig- on wobbly wire. There are all these obstacles that you have to do, and that is the only way to get down. You cannot get down any other way. Granted, you do have this harness wire thing, but how do I know that's going to hold me? I mean, who really knows? But thank God I went with Sharon. And I say thank God literally because I was singing to myself. I was praying. I clutched that wire so tight I had burns on my hands for two or three days. But I was so grateful I went with Sharon because Sharon would just skip across the little obstacles. Like, oh, this is so fun. And she would get to the other side. And I, my knees are shaking. My hands are sweating. I'm gripping the rope as tight as I can. And she looks at me and she says, you can do it, Sam. Just do it. You can do it. Just take one step. All right, one more. You're so close. It's kind of like when you're teaching a toddler to walk, like, you're doing so great. It was like that. But the times that I took my eyes off Sharon and I looked down at the ground at the jumpers below me or the, the concrete floor, I got really afraid. But the entire time that I had my eyes fixed on Sharon, I knew I was going to be okay because Sharon had already gone before me. And I think that's kind of what God invites us to do when he calls us to walk in the water. He says, fix your eyes on me because I have gone before you. I am encouraging you on the way. And as long as you have your eyes focused on me, you're gonna be okay. You are gonna be okay. As long as you in faith keep your eyes fixed on me, you're gonna be okay. So how? How do we keep our eyes fixed on God? I think it has a lot to do with what we let into our minds. The book of Isaiah says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is set on you. What are our minds set on? Can we really expect our focus to be on God when we spend the majority of our time consuming media, one day, maybe one hour a week consuming scripture, and set our minds on our worries, our thoughts, and everything that the world surrounds us with? Can we really expect our focus to be on God? God says, Eat my word, consume it because it's your life. Meditate on it, keep your eyes fixed on me, feed your mind with things that will focus you on me and I will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is set on me. That is a discipline. If we wanna keep our eyes focused on God as we walk through the storms, that's how we do it. It's by what we feed our minds. But Peter, We don't know how long he walked in the water. I like to think it was a while, even though the movies show that he sinks after two or three steps. But eventually, when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified, and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. It's interesting, because you'd think to yourself that if you're walking on water, you're not going to be too concerned about how choppy it is or how windy it is, right? But I think that Matthew wants to point out to you and to me that even someone who has been walking in faith for a while can still be afraid of the storms, can still be really disturbed by the storms that come our way. Even those who walk in faith can be afraid. And the reason that happens is because there are times in our lives where we decide to step out for God and we're gonna walk for him and it's gonna be awesome. And then midway through, we encounter a storm and we think to ourselves, I didn't know it was gonna be this hard. We get more focused on the overwhelming nature of the storm than the overwhelming nature of God. And what is our impulse when things get hard as humans who love to be comfortable? We want to quit. We want to sit at the side of the road and eat a donut and cry to ourselves. We want to look at the situation we're in, look at the God that put us in the boat and say, this is your fault. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. I quit. I quit this game. That's what we want to do. 
But you see, even though quitting always looks like relief, leaving something easily, especially a place that God has placed you, whether it's a church community, a family, a situation, leaving before it's time produces quitters. Leaving when God says it's not time weakens us. But if we will remain, if we will remain in the midst of the storm, that is where God shows us how strong he made us to be where he can infuse his strength in us and bring strength out of us that we didn't even know was there. And so he begins to sink, and instead of quitting and giving up and thinking to himself, you know what, let me just sink and drown because I don't like you and I don't trust you. Look, I came out to you, you called me, and now I'm sinking. He says, Lord, save me. And that is what God invites us to do today. If we're in the midst of a storm and we feel like quitting, God says, throw up your hand, Throw up your hand and shout, save me, Lord, because I will. Many times it doesn't seem this way. Many times that it seems we're just on our own, we have no anchor and things are not going to be okay. But recently I read um, about a man who interviewed trapeze artists. This is a, a picture of what I'll be talking about. He interviewed these trapeze artists. One of them is called the flyer and one of them is called the catcher. It's pretty obvious which is which. He interviews the trapeze artists And they told him the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. He must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. His job is not to flail about in anxiety. In fact, if it does, it could kill him. His job is to be still, to wait. And to wait is the hardest work of all. In life, we are the flyers and God is the catcher. And there are moments where he says, let go. Let go of everything that is safe to you. Let go of everything that feels good and then wait. Do not flail about in anxiety. This is not the time to lose our minds or to quit and give up. This is the time to wait. The catcher will catch you. God is saying, I am the catcher. I will catch you. Just wait. In the midst of the storm, I am on my way. I will not let you drown. I will not let you sink. In fact, when Peter says, When Peter says, catch me, Jesus immediately reached down and grabs his hand. You have so little faith, Jesus said, why did you doubt me? I really appreciate the fact that Jesus pulls him up before he talks to him about his little faith versus like, oh, you have little faith, what are you going to do? There's not any of that going on. God says you're in the midst of this storm to grow. I didn't put you here to torture you. I didn't put you here solely for the fear, only to make you stronger. I will save you. And afterwards, I will ask you the question, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt me? And the reason why he gets to ask this question is because after a series of times where Peter doubts Jesus, there will be a time where he will doubt him no more. And he will preach a sermon that brings 5,000 people to Christ. And none of that, what Peter does after Christ comes back to life, could have happened without these doubting moments. So God sends him into the storm. He allows himself to be betrayed and he asks, why did you doubt me? It's okay for us sometimes to not perfectly trust God. It's okay that in this moment, we are not truly and fully comforted by the fact that he's present because God is saying, I understand that and I will, if you allow me, if you will get out of the boat, if you will get out of the armchair, if you will get out of where you are comfortable, I will allow you to encounter me in such a way that you will never have to be afraid again when you see me. Maybe once, maybe twice, maybe three times, how many encounters it takes. I want you to learn who I am so that you do not have to be afraid. That's what he's saying to us. That's what he's saying to me today. 
And when they climbed back in the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. I find it interesting that the wind didn't stop while they were on the water. He doesn't calm it down before he calls him out. And the truth is that in our lives, there's never really a perfect time to follow after God. There's never really a perfect time to get out of the boat. Jesus doesn't calm the wind down before he calls Peter. And he tells you and me, I am calling you. You know what my call is. And if you don't, just ask me, just volunteer, just say, God, I wanna know you. And I'll tell you what it is. It's gonna be uncomfortable. It is gonna be risky. You're gonna have to pay some costs but the highest cost you could pay is to stay in the boat. Peter may have failed, he may have sunk in the water, but the 11 that stayed in the boat were the biggest failures of all because they had an opportunity to encounter Jesus, to experience Jesus, to put themselves on the line, to be uncomfortable, to risk and to sacrifice, and they said no. And what God says is, I do not want that to be your story. I have a purpose and a plan for you. It's gonna involve some discomfort and some pain, definitely some fear. For sure, you can bank on the fear and there will be risk of failure. But the higher cost is to miss it. The higher cost is to live an entire life for yourself, look back and think to yourself, wasn't there supposed to be more? The higher cost is to be the rich young ruler who sits with all his money and all his stuff and all his safety and looks back in his life and remembers a young carpenter that came to him and said, come and follow me and ask yourself, what would have happened if I had followed? God says, I do not want you to live with that question. Just follow me. You will not fail. I will catch you. You will not drown. I am right here. And if we will say yes, if we will say yes to going after him with all that we are, even if we're uncomfortable, he will catch us. There was once a young boy named William, and he said yes to this. He got out of the boat, 16 years old, crippled with polio. And in a country not here, a country far away, they didn't like people with polio. They don't like people with deformities, just like many of us don't. But at 16 years old, he saw another boy sitting on a sidewalk during a festival, and he looked sad. So he walks up to this other boy, 14 or 15, and he says, what's wrong? And the boy tells him the craziest story. He says, my family is spiritist. That means that we traffic in spirits. We believe in prophecies and crystal balls and fortune telling. And this fortune teller came to my house and told my parents when it was only me that was born, they said, you're gonna have 13 children. And if the 13th child is a girl, then every other child will die, and then both of you will die. And they didn't take it too seriously, because they believed, but they didn't believe until it was time to have the 13th child. And my father remembered that if the 13th child was a girl, then all of this havoc would be let loose. So he told the nurses, please don't tell my wife what gender the baby is. But the nurses forgot. And they came and told the wife, congratulations, you have a beautiful baby girl. And she began to hemorrhage and she died. And in the span of two years, in a series of freak accidents because this family was surrendered to these spirits, every other child died, every even child died. And eventually the father died as well. And this young man sitting on the side of the road said, my name is Danny, I'm 14, I'm the oldest in my family and I have to take care of all of my siblings. And William said, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. There's a God that loves you that's stronger than all of that stuff. Why don't you come with me to my youth group? So he invites him. He steps out of the boat to invite this guy named Danny. And he invites him again and again. He steps out of this boat, a 16-year-old with polio who 
could have been rejected by a peer, he steps out and he invites him into his youth group. And William is Seventh-day Adventist. And as Danny comes again and again when he has time, he realizes there's a God here that is bigger than spirits. I want to follow him. Not only does he follow him, but because he becomes a literature evangelist and a pastor. He builds, he builds churches all over his country. He works as an evangelist for a long time and brings hundreds of people to Jesus. And when it's finally time, this, this Southeastern California conference heard of this literature evangelist, wanted to increase their program and invited him and his family to the U.S. A couple years ago, Danny celebrated um, his 50-year anniversary anniversary with his wife. That's him right there in the middle. Because of William, because William was willing to risk, Danny celebrated his 50th anniversary surrounded by children and grandchildren. And I am one of them. That is my grandfather's story. I am here and my family's here. My, my parents met in the US. I am here because William was willing to step out of the boat because he was willing to look at a young teenager who was discouraged and he thought that life was over and he was willing as a teenager to say, there is a God that loves you that is stronger than everything you're encountering. I am here because of that. And as we look into our lives, many times we are at the place that we are because someone was willing to risk for God. And there are people that God wants to reach through. You have no idea. You have no idea what he might be wanting to do. Through a simple conversation, through a simple encouragement, you have no idea how many people he wants to bring to him, how many hearts and lives encourage. And if my grandfather had not been a pastor and not brought hundreds of people to Jesus, but it had only been him and his family, all of us, maybe that is enough. And God is saying, if you will risk for me, you don't know the lives you are affecting. If you will trust me, get out of the boat, pay the cost, and do not stay comfortable just where you are. I can do amazing things in you. As the band comes up, I have three challenges. If you find yourself in the boat today, living a life that is safe and comfortable, and there's nothing that you're doing that you don't need God to do, get out. Get out. And if you don't know what it is God wants you to do, then ask him and he'll tell you it will be as simple as a yes, come to me. If you're walking on the water, you're in a place where you know you're following God and things are wonderful, keep your eyes fixed on him. Fill your minds and set your minds on his word. And if you're sinking right now, then lift up your hand and call out because he'll be right there to save you. You will not be alone. But overall, trust him. Trust him, ask him to send you on the water and when he calls, go. Let nothing hold you back. Because when we get to heaven and maybe even before, we're gonna have some amazing stories of the things that God did through our acts of simple obedience.